week of the new year. And this is always an interesting week because, as you know, the first couple of weeks of January always cause our minds to start thinking about the future. In particular, this whole resolution sort of thing. Now, I don't know why this is the case. Think about this just mentally for a moment. You know, January 1st is truly a day like any other day. But for some reason, it serves as a life reset button for most of us on Earth. New year, new, 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 new. But the truth is that any day of the year is a good day to, to think about what you would like to be or who you would like to become. But this season in particular creates a season for us to really, uh, to really drill into that. It often causes us to evaluate the past and to think about what we want to be, what, what, the, what we want the future to be like, especially if we want it to be different. So, a long story short, during these couple of weeks, perhaps more than any other, life change is on everybody's mind. And so, in light of that, last week we prayed the new year in together, and today we're going to add something to that by looking at a, another great New Year's teaching in Ephesians chapter three verses 14 through 21. And this teaching is a great one for this week because through it, and I'm going to use this, this next statement kind of cautiously, you know, God can and will do what he wants. But when it comes to life change, oftentimes, uh, while we believe deeply that God is sovereign, there is this idea that we have to kind of be, be willing in some areas. So when we talk about the future, if you will let God, if you will permit God, I believe God will challenge you to think about where your heart is with him when it comes to his relationship with him. And this is a, a, a good book, a good teaching, if you will, in Ephesians, where Paul gives us a, a Christian set of New Year resolutions to help us experience God's presence in our lives. And what I would say is, oh, any resolution, so long as it's kind of you know, beneficial for humanity, is probably a good one. But these two big ones will really shape and influence some of the more particular ones we make. And so with that in mind, I want to challenge us each to think for a little bit today. And I'd like to challenge you to think with the same sense of urgency that Paul has for us in this passage. He's thinking about God's people a very long time ago with a sense of urgency. And I think it's important for us to kind of imbibe some of that same urgency in this, from this passage. <clears throat> and we'll talk about two critical things that the Scripture says every one of us must bring to God in prayer if we're serious about growing in Jesus this year. And so let's jump in and look at the first request, and it is this. He gives us these two great—they're almost prayer requests, if you will— uh, for us, and I'd like for us to pray them together this year. The first is this. Make this the year you pray that God creates a desire in you to embrace spiritual discipline. And we'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But Ephesians three fourteen through 17, very short verse, but it's one with a very powerful implication. Paul says this, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul is actively kneeling before the Father. And here Paul gives us an invaluable insight into why he had such a strong faith in Jesus. Not a perfect faith, but a strong faith. And it's found in this, this verse 14 because of this verb that he uses, I kneel. He's talking about both physically and spiritually he is doing something here. It's obviously a reference to the priority that he places on the spiritual discipline of prayer in his life. And this is really important to note in a passage like this, especially passages of Scripture that are promise-heavy. And this one is. Like the second idea we're going to talk about today, it's basically all the things God wants to do for you, to be in your life, the love and the, the riches of his grace. So we have these passages oftentimes where God drops this abundance of grace on us. And it is very easy for us to focus on what God wants to give us, oftentimes at the expense of what God is leading us to be. And this is one of those passages that will do that. So it's really important to note that before we focus on the back end of the promises that God makes to us, in particular in this passage, being rooted in love, living in his strength and his power, being filled with the fullness of Christ, while totally, we, we often gloss over the prerequisite ways that God says uh, w- we can actually experience these promises. And in this case, we see that a robust prayer life, right, uh, pursuing Jesus through, through this discipline, actually it, it primes the pump for God to be these things for us, to show us his love. 
Now, herein lies a, a secret, if you will, that really isn't supposed to be a secret when it comes to having a rich relationship with God, which is obviously the greatest resolution we can have because it will shape everything else we do. And I don't know about you, but Paul, for me, I had this manic obsession with him. I both love and sort of disdain him at times. And I'll tell you why. I find him to be one of the most encouraging and discouraging people in the whole Bible. He's encouraging because while he was not perfect, uh, you look at his situations in life, his trials, you look at his steadfastness during difficulty, he seems to have his stuff together. He recognizes the hardship of life, but he also has this, this ability to, to live his faith out in the world in the, in the worst of circumstances. He's consistent, we might say. He also has this uh, ability to have this hope in Jesus. It steadies him no matter how crazy his life gets. I mean, some of his most robust worship sessions are happening while he's like locked up in jail awaiting death. You know, he's about to be executed for his proclamation of the gospel. Yet it's in the season that, that rather than stressing and sweating, Paul decides to just worship God. And God does amazing things through that. And that is also what I think can be so frustrating about him. Because it's very easy to read about him or people like this, even though, again, he had his faults and his failures and his you know, thorn in the side. It's very easy to read about people like this in Scripture or maybe even know them in our lives. And it almost seems like they have an acute ability to find hope, comfort, and peace in Jesus during times of life that maybe we find it much harder to do. And that's why it's bittersweet. He's both an example, but also I think, if we're not careful, can be a discouragement. And this is why a natural question arises when we think about Paul and his life. Is there something special about him? Did God get him some kind of extra favor that he doesn't grant us? What, what makes his life so, what makes his life, able, what makes him able to live like this is what I'm saying. What, is he, what he, does he do? And verses like this teach us that we have to be careful about saying Paul was special or exceptional. I just think he understood something that you and I had the same ability to understand. That's why he's telling us about it today. Just like every other hero of the faith, whether they are inside the scripture or in our lives, Christianity is a faith that really does require this, this idea of spiritual discipline. And we've talked about a few of these before in our worship services, but this is a good time for us to think about the general concept for the new year. And I will, I will never forget the first time that the idea of spiritual discipline was presented to me. It was almost like a secret, and this is kind of why I framed it from this way. It was in my first year at seminary, in my first semester of seminary. You know, that first season, most of you have education, and oftentimes your first semester, you're required to take a handful of classes. Like, you have to take these first before you get into anything else, orientation classes or primer classes, whatever. Well, I had one of these, and the class was called uh, the Spiritual Disciplines. It was a mandatory class that had to be taken your first semester. Good way to start off your academic education. And the premise of the class was a little bit of a shock to me because at this point I had been a Christian for roughly 18 months. I had a pretty radical conversion. And that was the first time I had ever heard the words Christianity and this idea of spiritual discipline in the same sentence. And the more that I studied in this class and saw the precedent in Scripture, the more I felt like this was way too long to have just started hearing about this. It almost seemed like I should have been told this from day one, but I, I wasn't told this. It was a very important idea for the faith. And so in the class, our professor assigned us several readings, uh, but we had one primary text that we used. This is a great book if you don't have it on your shelf, or if this is something you'd like to delve a little more deeply into. The book is called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by a guy named Donald Whitney. 
And the book dedicated a chapter of each a chapter to each of the most crucial Christian disciplines. A handful of them being things like uh, scriptural reading, right? You know, knowing God through the Word, or uh, having a robust prayer life, understanding and participating in worship, right? Both privately and corporately in an environment like this. The idea of evangelism, sharing the gospel, having a heart for mission. It talked about things like financial generosity, tithing and giving, generosity in all realms of life, fasting and learning. This is just a handful of the things that he's talking about. And the book was revolutionary for me because, being very frank, up until this point, I really thought, and and there is much truth in what I'm going to say here, but it is a truth that has a comma at the end of it. Up until this point, I thought that faith, right, this great gift that God had given me, was just a gift that God gave me to, to satisfy my needs, my life needs. I thought God loves me, he cares for me, true, 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 true. But I didn't realize until I really started delving into this, this class that there were other things that mattered in the Christian faith. I didn't even know what a Christian discipline was, let alone that biblically and historically, they are the primary way that God chooses to bring about Christ-centered growth and maturity in his people. So yes, God wants to pour into me, but now I start realizing that he's got a, he's got a handful of really important tools that he likes to use as he does pour into us. And it didn't take long to find the thesis of the book. You can find it on the second page. It stood out like a sore thumb. And Donald Whitney says this. It'll be behind me. You read it with me. He says, Christians have been redeemed to pursue a life of godliness. And the spiritual disciplines are the God-given means we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. Godly people are disciplined people. It has always been so. And he then went on to give this extensive list of people throughout church history and also in his personal life, kind of his own personal heroes, pastors and friends and leaders and other congregants. And uh, he he gave this great list about uh, people that he felt like lived up to this. They fit this bill and therefore they became influencers. And 1 Timothy 4.7 affirms this truth when Paul, again in a different way, not surprisingly, he, he commands every believer to discipline their lives for the purpose of godliness. So I began learning that faith, uh, while God makes the ultimate investment in us when it comes to our faith, he also, as we grow in him, calls us to make a deposit into ourselves. That's what the disciplines are. It's a great way to begin your new year pursuing Jesus by saying, I am going to shepherd or tend to my own spirituality in Christ. And so it's fair to say in a room this size with uh, diverse people from all different kinds of walks of life and histories, church backgrounds, non-church backgrounds, it's fair to say that in a room this size, uh, some of us might be in the same boat that I was prior to taking that class. And this is because we, we live in a culture that does seem to be inclined at this point to encourage spirituality uh, an appetite for the spiritual, but not necessarily in their desire to discipline their lives for the sake of godliness. And so what happens here is, even in the Christian world, we long for spirituality. Like right? We long to know Jesus. We long to be in his presence. And we have all these, these experiential words that Scripture gives us about how God, how God knows us, but we can often disconnect them from, from the primary ways God desires to bring about those promises in our lives. And what winds up happening is, you, you might become actually very spiritual, but maybe not very Christ-like. These are two very different things. The ultimate, the ultimate brand, if you will, of spirituality in the Christian faith is, is maturation into the image of Jesus, not spirituality in some direction that disconnects ourselves from him. And so some interesting things happen here. We, we get to this place where if we're not careful, if we, if we disconnect ourselves from the discipline of Scripture study— genuinely worshiping God in community with church family. And by worshiping, I'm using this word very broadly. What I mean by this is we tend to relegate worship to the time we spend together on Sunday mornings, which is important. But worship far exceeds the boundaries of life. 
uh, in this room, how we speak into each other's lives, how we seek counsel for decisions, how we progress in life. The people of God have all been put together for a reason because they help us when we are truly looking to each other's benefits. They help us become more like Jesus. And what starts happening is we start making better decisions, wiser decisions. We start worshiping God not just in the room, but in all areas of life in ways that honor him. We start having a, a, a devout prayer life, right? If we get to this place where we disconnect ourselves from praying and from the word and from the church family, then what happens is we start to walk away from, I would say, what are the three primary disciplines the Bible says all the other, it's the wellspring all the other disciplines flow out of. And so in general, the scriptures, right, the Bible, it is a book largely concerned with leading us to experience Christ's fullness in our lives. Paul just said that. We see that these three disciplines are mentioned a great deal because they are kind of the pathways that take us there. And in particular, you can almost summarize what Paul is saying here like this. The degree to which you and I can experience God's promises and the fullness of life that he offers us, it is directly connected into how much of a priority we make the spiritual disciplines in our life. So the reason he says, kneel before the Father and then experience his riches is because these two things are not meant to be disconnected. Now, there's something pretty important about this idea. God gave them to us so that we could know him and deeply experience him. The disciplines are for our benefit. Now, I'll give you an example of what happens when we abandon them, or at least are negligent with some. Uh, Very, very early on in my ministry, I shared this story with you about four years ago. It's a memorable one in my life, and it was one one of the stories that actually really rooted me into this. I was giving a teaching at a church on the Lord's Prayer on uh, Matthew 6.12. We did a long study in that. It was great. And uh, that's the verse, in case you don't have Matthew memorized, which you should. That should be another New Year's resolution. That's the verse that tells us that uh, we should pray to God that he forgives us our trespasses uh, against him, right? So we want to ask that God, God, forgive us our trespasses as we faithfully forgive those who trespass against us. Great, great root teaching in Scripture, Matthew 6.12. And during the course of my talk, I made this point that Jesus was making a pretty serious connection between how a Christian uh, receives God's forgiveness in their own lives, a person who says, I am forgiven, one of the realities of their life should be that they are able to forgive others. This is part of the, the reality of received forgiveness. It shapes a new culture in our life. And so if, if we don't have the ability to forgive, or at least to wrestle with the fact that we don't want to forgive, in other words, we, we harbor bitterness or callousness, what starts happening is, is it does truly, according to Jesus, call into question some of the, some of the, the validations of our Christian faith. In other words, it's one of those like red light sensors that's saying this is a concern. We need to think about this here for a moment because to not give forgiveness when the root of our faith is based on it is a problem. So one of the preeminent marks of a person who has received forgiveness in Jesus is they can show it to others. And immediately after I said this, somebody in the back of the room, uh, rather aggressively, I might add, they stood up and they yelled out that they had been a Christian a really long time and they had never, ever, ever heard this teaching before. Like they, this is, in case you don't know, uh, in Church World 101, this is a nice way of saying, uh, Pastor, you are a heretic. That's what was happening from the back of the room. And so I was not taken back by the question. You know, you hear it a good bit. But I guess I was taken back by the reason that it happened in the middle of a room like this. And it was just kind of angry. And so it's always okay to ask questions, obviously. This is one of our cultures, is you can ask anything. We just want to kind of do it in a, in a polite way. And so rather calmly, I had asked the person if they would continue reading. We weren't at this point in the, the teaching yet. But for sake of dealing with this, I asked if they would read down a little further, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 through 15, which was just a, you know, two verses down the road from where we were. And in them, Jesus literally says this. I will tell you what he says. He says, for, after that whole thing about forgiveness, for if you forgive others when they sin against you, 
you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, uh, your Father will not forgive your sins. And so they, they read this verse aloud, and at that point it was clear that this was not something I was saying. I was kind of regurgitating something that Jesus said. And so uh, in, a, in a reciprocal way, I calmly looked at this person and said, bam, <laughs> you're out. Like, take that. Now, I would like to have done that, but I did not do that um, <clears throat> because they were just kind of mean and a little bit aggressive. But nonetheless, uh, in a very pastoral way, we use this as a teachable moment to talk about a few things. Obviously, the point of forgiveness here is that I don't know that Jesus is literally saying, if you can't forgive, you're not a Christian. That might be a little hard. It could certainly end up at that place. But he's calling to mind the fact uh, that, that we cannot proclaim or receive or live in forgiveness and not show it to others. There is, a, there is an action, if you will, tethered to a promise. The, this action is the reality of the promise. To be forgiven means you can forgive, right? And so the point in this is a pretty serious one. You had a person who, who kind of adamantly believed their maturity in Jesus was based on the amount of time they knew God. The, the whole premise of the statement was, I've been a Christian, and it was true, way longer than I had been one. And, and because of this, I'm going to contest what you're saying. But in actuality, what happened was, Time in the kingdom really doesn't have anything to do with maturity. If, and when all the cylinders are you know, uh, firing properly, obviously the longer we're a Christian, theoretically the more mature we should be. We, here we had a bit of a disconnect. There was a, an obvious uh, inability to know other parts of the Bible, which likely indicates that it was a person who was not necessarily studying the Bible. And so this, this, this step away from Scripture, but yet wanting this kind of ability to speak about its clarity and its truth creates a problem. And in this case, it, it, it caused a person to be very far from God in an area of Christianity that is very near to heart, God's heart, forgiveness. So they're talking about something that, frankly, at this point, they didn't really even know about. And so in Christianity, a discipline helps you to grow in Jesus. But a lack of personal spiritual discipline always leads to a lack of intimacy with God. You're going to start formulating ideas and thoughts and opinions and making decisions in life that are disconnected likely from who God calls us to be and leads us to be. They are the God-given way we pursue God. So think of it like this. When you are faithful to practice the Christian disciplines of prayer, of scripture study, and worship, you start creating in your life a fertile soil. I use this analogy a lot because I do think faith is like a field. And Jesus actually talks about this in the parable of the soils. We are developing and cultivating faith. And so the disciplines are kind of like nutrients that we drop into the soil that can really accelerate God's ability to grow Christ-like maturity in us. And for those of us in Jesus, this is kind of the, the point of the faith, right? Is we, we make this commitment to want to be more like Jesus, to want to grow into the image of Jesus. And so it should be a desire one of our greatest resolutions, if you will, should be that in all that we say and do, we want to be growing in Jesus. And so if you see there today, having recognized that maybe you're neglecting the spiritual disciplines of your life, one or some or all of them, or maybe you were like me, and this is the first time you've even heard this connection made, it's important to know that there is no judgment in a passage like this or even in a teaching like this. Rather, a, a heartfelt concern and call for you to bring that to God and to ask for his grace, to ask him to, to move in your life in such a way to, to make these disciplines a priority. In other words, week two, right? We're in the new year now. We're kind of just starting it. Start the new year by doing something very simple. Maybe this is the year you read a chapter of the Bible a day. That will take you all of about three minutes. Unless you're in the Old Testament, that could be a little longer. But start in the New Testament and read a chapter of the Bible. Start in a gospel. Just, just get into this habit of, of reading. Or make it a point this year to, to worship faithfully in this room and outside of this room. Ask God, because he promises that these are things he will deliver on. Ask him to increase your appetite for him. Because when you do, something amazing happens. What you will find is that the more you make it a priority to get into God's presence, 
you'll find that he has a habit of getting in yours. God wants to know you. He wants to show himself to you. And so when you, when you kind of green light that, then what happens is you give God an amazing platform to work in your life, one that he doesn't have to force or wrestle you into. So make this the year where you pray that God makes it a, a priority of your heart to know him through these spiritual disciplines, through prayer, especially scriptural study and, and communal worship. And this leads me to the, to the second prayer request that Paul gives for us for the new year. It's one that he gives us but also tells us to kind of practice. Make this the year you pray that God helps you to grasp the riches of the love of Christ. So we don't just want to ask God to make us, you know, juggernauts for Jesus. We also want to recognize that part of what it means to, to grow in our faith and our love for Jesus means that we grow in our understanding of the riches of the way Jesus loves us. You can never disconnect the action from the promise in the same way you can't disconnect the promise from the action. Both create faith, faith-based paradigms that are problematic. So Ephesians three seventeen through 19 says this, And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, right? In other words, he's kneeling, he's praying, he is serving God well, and he's saying, I, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, not rooted and established in works or in deeds, but rooted in love, that you may have power together corporately with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. In other words, he's trying to throw a bunch of of descriptions out here that let us know that, that the love of Jesus for us is boundless. High, deep, left, right, wide, it is infinite. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So the end game in all of this, our growing in Jesus, our becoming more like him, the disciplines is that we truly, at the center of our beings, have Jesus on the throne of our hearts. And that creates an amazing life. And so Paul's second prayer for us is found in verse 17, where he asks God to root and establish us in his love. And hopefully the language the Bible uses here to describe the effect that Jesus' love should have in our lives, because this is cause and effect right here. God's love leads to this, is essentially what he's saying. It will cause us to rethink how deeply we're supposed to understand and experience his love in our lives. There is both a, a cognitive knowledge of the love of God and an experiential love, uh, understanding of the love of God. And this is important to know because for a lot of us, for many Christians, we live worshiping a Jesus that seems very small. Think about this. I mean, he is the king. We just sang this. He's the king, right? He is sovereign and he he is in charge. But yet oftentimes we, we will sing on a Sunday these truths, yet act like Jesus is very small in our lives the rest of the week. We have him in our lives, but he's tucked away somewhere, you know, in the deep recesses of our hearts. He's got like a, I don't know, an add on room in our lives, not necessarily the, the penthouse suite. So we know he's in there, right? And at times we might even really believe he's in us and and dwelling in us and his spirit is working in us. But those powerful moments, the ones Paul are talking about right here, they're far more rare than we want them to be. We read about power and we want to know why we don't feel it. And that's why this passage is truly a promise to claim as we enter the new year. Because it's challenging those of us who have, and I'm going to use a strong word here, to a certain degree maybe we've domesticated Jesus in our lives. Like he is the king of the universe, but, but we've reduced him to something much smaller than he needs to be in our lives. What we want to do is ask ourselves if, is if we domesticated him. And if we have, is it time to unleash him? Is it time to let him be Jesus in our lives? To recognize that having the presence of Christ in us means that, think about this. The Son of God doesn't just know you. According to the theology of the Holy Spirit, he has taken up residence in you. He has moved into your life, and he is now a part of it. And if you will let him, 
uh, uh, connected to his moving into your life, he promises to give you strength and to shape your life based on his promises, not necessarily his, the circumstances of life. Or I'm sure in a room this size, some of us are even thinking about the problems we're dealing with right now. He, he causes us to think through life based on promises, not problems. And he refashions every fiber of our being in accordance to his love through the grace of his gospel. And so this is a prayer that says, let the power of Jesus reign supreme in your life this year. And in Scripture, experiencing the love of Christ, the power of Christ, can take many forms. But here it is talking about power. Now, this is important to know because, as you well know, with each new year, there are certain things that are going to be blessings. There are things we're like, it's 2016. I cannot wait for this. We give thanks for what the future holds. But every new year also carries with it some challenges that will likely cause us to rely on Jesus' strength to overcome. A new year is probably framed like this in most of our minds. Things we're excited about and things we know we're going to have to figure out this year. And I would imagine, because I know a great many of you, um, and most of you are very intelligent people with great aptitude, that you already know what most of those challenges are right now. You already know what's ahead of you. You know what you've got to face in the workplace. You know what you're dealing with in school. You understand the dynamics of what's going on in your families. You have a good grip on your personal life. <clears throat> the question for a lot of us in this room right now isn't necessarily what's ahead of us. Rather, how do we deal with what is ahead of us? So right now, we have two options in how we deal with these things. There are always options, but the two big ones are always going to be this. We can, A, release the power of Jesus' love in our life and let his gospel promises shape you. We can say, man, Paul was serious when he said, like, may the riches of Jesus define your life. He was serious when he said that. We can let the power of the promises shape life, or we can let our hearts be ruled by fear and doubt. And that's usually the way this works. It's going to be one of the two. You will live in the power of Jesus, or you will be ruled by fear, anxiety, and doubt. And so let me put this choice to you in another way, in a very practical way. For those of you that are in Jesus and have been in him for a while, if I sat you down and I gave you like the Christian quiz about how God's power has already worked in the world and in particular what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you, here's how every single one of us would answer this. Those of us that have been following Jesus and have a, an understanding of him. If I were to say, listen, do you believe that God is real and that he loves you? To truly be a Christian, you would have to say yes. Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he came to earth and he loves you? Uh, yes. Not only was he God in heaven, but, but he came to earth. We just celebrated this last month. Do you believe that he died for your sins, right? Do you believe that he loved you so much that he gave himself for you? We'll, we'll celebrate this in Easter, right? Of course, it's the foundation of the faith. God's love for me prevails in all things. Do you believe that after he died, not only did he just die, was he born for you, lived for you, died for you, but after that he, he resurrected, showing that he was God Almighty, he was a creator of heaven and of earth, and there was no power in life or death that could hold him down. You would say, absolutely, this is the foundation of my faith. Every Christian would have to say they believe that. This is the reality of who Jesus is and why he can make the kinds of promises he does to us. Now, in light of all this stuff, this is just a short list of Jesus' resume. In light of all this stuff that we believe about God and his love for us in Jesus, I want to ask you a couple more questions. And through them, I hope that you will see the common disconnect that people often make between Jesus' power and their personal lives. He says he's this, but when it gets down to how he works in our lives on Mondays, there's a disconnect. If I were to ask you, that same Jesus we just talked about, do you believe that he can heal your heart of emotional hurts? Maybe ones that have been plaguing you for decades? I'm not sure. Maybe you know. If you're bound by these things, the answer is no. The Christ who redeems the world can't heal the heart. Can that same Jesus help you deal with a difficult relationship you're in? Well, I'm not sure. Things seem beyond repair. 
He only resurrected, but, but I'm not sure he can handle the, the peer relationships I have or the working relationships or the, the family relationships. Can he be the source of your stability right now if you are in one of those precarious positions where your job market is unstable? 297,000 jobs created this month. Maybe yours is not one of them, or maybe yours is kind of a little sketchy right now. Probably not. I'm freaking out. Can he be your rudder as you navigate the waters of physical illness? Is there a, your own thorn on your side, something plaguing you? No way. I just, I'm ruled by this stuff. Can he be your peace when your savings account isn't where you hoped it would be at this stage in life? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I keep trying to say it, but I can't save any money. The reality of this is stark. When you compare Jesus' love and resurrection power for you against the— and some of these are very common challenges that we face in life. I'm not saying they're easy, but I'm saying they are common. Side by side on paper, who Jesus is and what our circumstances are, it is no contest. I mean, Jesus is a guaranteed first-round knockout here. There is no opponent in life or in death that can stand up to his power or rob you of his peace unless you let them. This is what Paul is praying for us to know right now. He's praying for a new beginning, and it's just a timely verse to look at as we enter a new year. And Paul's point here is very simple. When a person truly grasps Christ's love in their hearts, they genuinely experience God's movement in their life. Knowing Jesus deeply in the heart means God starts moving in life. Maybe not the way you expect, but nonetheless moving. Let me explain. In the Bible, God's love is both noun and verb. And so what this means is, is in one one sense, it describes a posture of God's heart towards. It describes something that he is towards us. But in another sense, it also describes the way God is compelled to, to act on behalf of us. God's love actually dictates certain things that he has to do. Thus, the cross, his love for us, demanded the cross happen. He's bound by his own character and traits. And so a proper understanding of biblical love seamlessly marries these two ideas together. And what this means in life and in our church in this new year is that wherever God's love is present, wherever there is this statement made, God lives in me and God knows me and God loves me, wherever God's love is present, the primary place being in the lives of his people today, it causes amazing things to happen in those people. So as we enter 2016, or at least take another step in it, I hope you deeply believe that God loves you and God's love wants to move in two very important places in your life in this new year, or two important ways this new year. The first has been the primary subject of today's talk. The first place that we've touched on is your own life. The promise Paul makes to you and me is a very personal one. What he's saying is, is the riches of Jesus, you can have those. So the promise to us is if we pursue God and ask God for these things, he will be faithful to bestow them upon us. And that is one of the great promises of the Bible. It's to know that Christ's love comes with the promise of being transformed by God's love, of being remade into the powerful image of Jesus, of dwelling in an unrivaled relationship with God. It's a fullness of life, like Paul says, that promises you nothing short of the full presence of God. Listen to how in another place, Colossians 2, 9 through 10, Paul describes this. He says, For in Christ, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So the fullness of God is in Jesus. And in Christ, the fullness of God has now been brought to your life, to you and me. He is the head over every power and authority. The same power and authority that Jesus had on earth lives in us right now. It's amazing. So we are the head over things because Jesus is the head over us. And even better is this fullness of life is readily available to any person who wants it. Connected to it is a peace and a confidence that will allow you to replace all those no's and I'm not sure's and maybe's or I don't feel this. Whatever, whatever your no list is, your challenge list is this year, 
the power of Jesus has the ability to replace no's and I'm not sure's with yeses and absolutely's. Because God, when you know God is helping you to deal with what's going on before you, there is a new confidence that is inspired in you. So God wants to work in your life, and don't forget that. No matter what your resolutions are, make sure that is the one defining the other ones. God, if you want to be healthy, God wants you to be more healthy than you want to be healthy. If you want to be you know, robust in your maturity in Jesus, that is a noble desire, and God wants, God wants that for you more than you want that for you. Make sure your resolutions align with him. Also recognize that this promise Paul makes to us is not just meant to be in individual. Okay, So we're called to start tending the soil of our hearts, to remember that experiencing this type of fullness is, is not automatic. It requires a deep trust in God, a desire to invest in our own faith by pursuing God through the spiritual disciplines. It requires us to make an investment in us, but it also requires us to make an investment in others. The other place God wants to move is in our world, and the way God moves in our world is through his local churches. And so when we speak about local churches, I'll talk about this one right now since this is our family. The second place I deeply believe God wants to move this year is in the life of our church. And so if you're asking God, or if you're asking me right now, how I got this idea from this passage where Paul seems to be very pointedly talking about us, this requires us to zero out very broadly and look at Paul's writings here and the, and the correlation he makes in some of his other writings. The book of Ephesians, much like Paul's other epistles, we'll study another one at the end of this month, it is entirely focused on how God wants you to experience his fullness in life. In Philippians, it's joy. But these books are not written to just a random group of people walking around the ancient world. They're written to people in local bodies, local congregations called churches. This one is Ephesus. The one we'll study in a few weeks is, is Philippi. These, these teachings, although they are targeted at us, they are, they are one big teaching about how we grow in the measure of Christ's fullness together as God's family. So we cannot disconnect these two things. And this is why, in case we have a, an issue with this, Paul prays for us in verse 18 to experience Christ's power together with all of the Lord's people. He doesn't say, in the back room of your house or on the way to work, by yourself in your car, super important. But he says, make sure you experience this power with all of God's people, because this is a power we are meant to share in together and to encourage each other on in it when we are without it. It is a sharp reminder that we can never disconnect God's promises to us as individuals from the larger body of his church. And so Christianity is all about being in a loving community lived out between us and God and us and each other. This is why this is one of our values as a church. And this distinction is an an important one because it is the difference between you leaving this place knowing that while God is deeply concerned about every single one of you, he is not only concerned about just you. That's the distinction here. To walk out of here saying this is only for me means God is only concerned with me and it will likely create a myopic understanding of our life over this next year. But to have this in our minds knowing that God is also concerned with how we are with other people, how he wants to work in our lives and also simultaneously through the work of his body to bring about his promises in the lives of other people who are without them in our city, that is a game changer. That creates a platform for God's love to be manifested and for his movement to begin. And so as we close this morning and take another step in the new year, as we move into that third week of January, where people's resolutions often become distant memories. I, I've told you this before. I listen to a lot of NPR because uh, I try to stay up on current events. And I heard an interesting bit this week. A, quite a few of them were geared at week one was essentially saying, what are your resolutions? Week two was saying, how are you doing on keeping them? Week three, we won't even talk about them anymore. This is the way the world works. right? The, 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 the segment next week will be uh, statistically people that, uh, speaking. This is how many people actually keep their resolutions, right? Make sure as we move forward that, that this idea of loving Jesus well, what we prayed about last week and begin executing now, 
Make sure these are not distant memories, but they are the things that define our lives. And so in light of that, I want to ask you some closing questions. Ask yourself today, if you're pursuing godliness through the disciplines of faith, are you, are you pursuing a spirituality disconnected from Jesus, or are you saying, I'm going to pursue Jesus through his approved methods? And if you do that, I promise he's going to work in your life. If you're not in Christ, or you're wrestling with Christ, or maybe you've been in Christ for a long time, and you've got a lot of questions about that decision you made a long time ago, ask yourself why this is the case. God's love, his power, and his peace are waiting for you. Even if you feel like you are without them, they are already in you. And it is a matter of asking whether or not that can, you can return to that if you're struggling with Christ or asking if you're not in him at all, what, what are you waiting on? What's the, what's the next thing that has to be addressed before you make that step or take that step? And as we think about our future, I really am convinced that the good work God started here through us five years ago, it's, it's beginning again. We're at a new season. There's a new trajectory We have challenges ahead of us, but we also have exciting things in front of us. We're praying about a new place to meet. We're praying about what what a more robust presence of God's love in our church and our community looks like. What does it mean for us to be more proactively engaged in Jesus' affairs in our world for the sake of his gospel? God's done a lot of great things here, and he's doing great things here. And I believe he has a lot that he still wants to do through us. So it's truly my prayer that this would be the day that you take a next step with Jesus by connecting more deeply to him to our church family, by committing to serve the work of our mission and our ministry, by supporting the work that we are currently doing with your time, your talents, and treasures. Let God work in your life as he works in the lives of others. In 2016, as you pray to develop yourself and labor in that regard, as you work in the context of the church and give and serve and do all the things many of you have been doing faithfully for years, I want to ask you all to partner with me in praying the back end of what Paul prays. It's kind of like he gives us a prayer sandwich. I kneel so that you will experience this so that you can become this. And he says this in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Here's the bottom of this buttery good piece of bread on this prayer sandwich. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, it is to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so what that means is the heavy lifting of our resolutions, well, we have to take them seriously. The heavy lifting of our faith, the onus of that is on him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ever ask for or imagine. So pray robustly and mightily, but know that God wants to do more in your life than what you're even praying for. That promise is as true for us today, for your life and mine, as it is for our church. And whatever we're asking God to do, especially when we ask for things that honor him, remember, I've done a lot of teaching on prayer in here. When we ask the things that are in his name, We should expect for him to do more because he wants to do things that are in his name and he wants his grace to be known and he wants his goodness to be known in our lives. And so as we enter 2016, let's pray diligently for God to bring about this promise internally and in the lives of our church and our city. Let's be willing to get to the first part of that prayer to let him use our lives to accomplish both because that's the way it's going to happen. He's not going to work in your, he's not going to accomplish a prayer around you. He's going to accomplish something through you. And as we move to the communion table, What a great way to celebrate this this morning. As we think about the past, present, and future reality of Jesus, I pray that our time we have in communion today, you would ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about this new year, and what is it that you intend to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for for a teaching that truly does talk about new beginnings and newness of life. And I thank you, God, that this is one of the beautiful hallmarks of the Christian faith, newness. Newness, God, as we come to you for the first time, 
newness as we recome to you in the years that we are following you. God, the beauty of our faith is that when we are faithful to believe your promises, that no matter where we find ourselves, whether it's mountaintop or valley, you are faithful, God, to help us to to grow in you, to experience the newness of life that you've promised us. I pray, Lord, that these would not be fleeting words, or, or even if we read these words, that we see them as much more than just print on the pages of a Bible. These are your living words, and they are meant to speak truth and reality into our lives. So this day, as we think about communion, as we think about who you are, and as we talk about next steps in your life, it is my prayer, Father, that you would help us to not just hear these things, but to know them and to deeply experience them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.